With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 2. As we continue to study the history of the church, particularly during the time of the Protestant Reformation in England and Scotland, I am very uh, sensitive to the fear that people who may visit think that we're just giving historical lectures. And so I want you to make sure that you understand that these sermons on history are applications of counsel and advice in the Word of God and are and is, that is the series on history, is an application of various principles and teachings in the Word of God, such as Isaiah 51, verses 1, 2, and 3. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry or excavation from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was one, I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a sound of melody. Now, here you have God's uh, counsel to his faithful people on how to survive spiritually during an age of hostility to God and in an apostate culture. He addresses those who seek the Lord who were few and far between in Israel at this point in time. Israel was apostate. It was under the judgment of God. It was soon to be destroyed. And to those faithful Christians, so to speak, in that apostate culture, he says, if you want to survive, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. And then the next sentence tells you what he means. Look to Abraham, your father. In other words, if you want to remain faithful and true during times of great temptation and trial, don't ever lose sight of the history of the covenant people of God and your portion in it. If you lose sight of the history of God's people through the ages and the display of God's mighty work in the lives of his people through the ages, then you're going to have a tendency to think you stand alone. And if you think you stand alone, you're going to be easily intimidated and soon be overwhelmed and will give up. So if you're going to survive this apostate culture, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, Jesus, Paul, the early missionaries, the Protestant Reformation, the Scottish Reformation, the English Reformation, the Puritans in this country, the Pilgrims, the Southern Presbyterian Church to this day. That's the rock out of which we have been carved. And if we're going to survive in an age of apostasy, we can't get past a raisin. If you know what that means. Now, uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verses 9 through 13. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. For across to the coastlands of Kittim and Sea... And send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, and be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that could hold no water. What has brought the apostasy of the church in this century? It has changed God's. It has left the cistern of living water that God cut for it, and it's made its own cisterns that are broken that hold nothing. And if there's ever going to be revival in the Christian church, we've got to repent of the gods that we worship in our theology books, in this plague of paperback Christian, in quotes, books that hit us on every hand, all of which uh, have low views of God. We've got to repent of all that and get back to the only God that is, and the great, the people who can lead us most effectively have been dead for a good while. And studying history, and the history of the church, particularly the Protestant Reformation, is one of the ways by which we say we're tired of the broken cisterns. We repent of the false gods that we've made for ourselves. We want to get back to the God of our fathers, the God of the covenant, the God of the scriptures. And seeing how the great men of God knew him, and what they wrote about him, and what they taught, and how they lived for him, can put us well on our way in getting back to the cistern that holds living water. Now with that, let's finish up tonight on John Knox. There's two other unique contributions that John Knox made. We've been talking about him now for three or four weeks. There's two other unique contributions John Knox made, really not unique, to the Protestant Reformation. And I hesitated. Uh, last week I wanted to finish up with John Knox and go on. But I want to come back instead because there are two aspects of his ministry that we need to be aware of. Not just true of him, but true of all of the reformers, Calvin, Bootser, all of them. To help you see that these men were not just concerned with the reformation of the organization we call the church. But that they were concerned with the reformation by the word of God of every area of life. And they wanted God's people to be faithful to God and to God's word, not just in the church, but in every area of life. Because a lot of times we get the impression that these Puritans and these reformers were men who just talked about God and heaven. And as somebody said, are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That they really cut themselves off. They're just Protestant monks and priests who cut themselves off from the reality of the problems of society around them. And just be concerned with organizing a church and forgetting everything else. And I want you to see that's totally wrong. Because the two, great, two of the great emphases in Knox's ministry, as well as Calvin and all the rest, is their concern for relief of the poor and the unemployed and education. And I want you to see what these men did in an effort to be faithful to the Scriptures in each of those areas. They weren't perfect in either one. We've, we've learned a lot of more things over the past 450 years since Mr. Knox and Mr. Calvin. And the church, the Reformed church, is built upon their shoulders, learned from the right things they taught, corrected some of their weaknesses. But nevertheless, I want you to see they dealt with these things and really sought to deal with the, poor, the problem of poverty and dealt with it far more effectively than 20th century America. In fact, it was through John Knox's and the Scottish Reformers' care for the poor and their concern to rebuild education that the Scottish church had such a tremendous influence upon the entire nation and society of Scotland. Under their leadership, every congregation was given the responsibility of providing for anybody that was financially or physically disadvantaged in its congregation. Forget the state. Forget the political welfare system. It was the congregation's responsibility to make sure that everybody in the church was taken care of physically and financially. With the primary aid going to widows, orphans, elderly people, disabled people, and those who were suffering severe financial hardships. The church in Scotland made a distinction that's almost heresy to, to make in America today, and that is they distinguished between sturdy beggars and what they called impotent beggars. Now, an impotent beggar 
was somebody who did not have the power to care for himself. He was in serious trouble financially, not because of anything that was his doing, but because of the, uh, of the situation at his time. Maybe he was kicked out of his church, a preacher kicked out of his church and driven into poverty. Uh, there were some people who were beggars and they couldn't do anything about it. And those, though, uh, they weren't beggars, they were people who uh, were, were in serious need. But then there were sturdy beggars. Now, a sturdy beggar was somebody who was physically strong, who could do something about his situation, who could make a living if he just tried. But he was a good-for-nothing bum and wouldn't make any effort toward improving his situation. For begging by sturdy beggars was outlawed. Sturdy beggars could not... If they were able-bodied men, able to labor, they couldn't beg. Everybody that was unable to work, now this is good too, everybody that was unable to work for whatever good reason had to go back to the place of his birth or where he lived most of his life and appeal to the church in that town. Now that's smart because you see everybody knows you're back there. And they know whether you're lying or not. They know whether you're a sturdy or impotent beggar or not. But you had to go back to your hometown if you were in any financial need. And guess who was primarily responsible in the church for administrating relief to the poor? The deacons. Where you think we got the idea. In fact, Knox later in his life encouraged the establishment of a hospital for poor people. And a lot of his ideas for helping poor people and disadvantaged people he got from Geneva, Switzerland, where Calvin was when he, when he, Knox, was a student there and once pastored an English-speaking church there. And when you compare how the uh, Calvinists in Geneva took care of the poor and how Knox later took care of the poor, you see where he got most of his ideas. The Calvinists in Geneva made a distinction between the deserving poor and the sturdy beggars. The Calvinists in Geneva, Switzerland, used the diaconate to administer care to poor people. John Knox got his idea for a hospital from what was called the Hospital General in, in Geneva, which was a facility that provided hospital and medical care for orphans and elderly people, along with shelter and food for immigrants or refugees. In fact, from that hospital in Geneva, food was distributed every week to poverty-stricken households. And one of the most distinguishing features of the way the reformers took care of the poverty problem was the lay control of, the, of the, this relief program. It was not in the hands of the state. It was in the hands of Christians. I read an article recently, well, it's been three or four years now, that said that if every church and synagogue in America would just take care of two or three bona fide people who were in po uh, poverty situations, it would end the whole poverty problem in the United States. So you see, these men were men of compassion. Now, the second thing that we need to point out with Mr. Knox is his concern for the reform of education in Scotland. Scotland had been known for education, ex educational excellence for centuries, largely because of the early Celtic influence in the uh, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century. Knox wrote a booklet that had a, one of its major emphases on the reformation of, of education. It's called A Brief Exhortation to England. He wrote in 1559. show you there's nothing new about Christian schools. Presbyterians were having Christian schools long before the Christian school movement in America. Knox emphasized the necessity of Christian education for the preservation of Protestantism. said, if we don't have schools that practice Christian education, distinctively Protestantism will not last. And so he called for the establishment of schools in every English city and major town. He understood the danger of allowing men who were not devoted to biblical Protestantism to teach in the educational system. And so he pled the teachers have got to be strictly Reformed and not Roman Catholic or Anglo-Catholic, if the school system is going to be Christian. He also 
believed that the church had the responsibility to oversee these schools as well as the universities in Scotland to make sure their educational philosophies and practices were in accord with the Word of God. The whole educational system from kindergarten, so to speak, through the universities envisaged by Knox and the Scottish Reformers was to be Christian, thoroughly Christian, distinctively Christian in all of its philosophies and goals. These men saw the purpose of education not to make people well-equipped, effective citizens, but to train young people to be thoroughly Christian in their thinking and their behavior. The Reformed churches in each town were responsible for appointing schoolmasters. See, they could do it now because the Protestant Reformation had swept Scotland. So this was possible in a way that it's not possible now, yet, in America. The churches in each town were responsible to appoint teachers. Rural areas where they didn't have the, the manpower to appoint teachers was to entrust, were to entrust the education of the, their young people to the preachers and to the assistance of the preachers. And they were responsible for the basic education of people in the rural areas, centering around, of course, teaching a Calvinist catechism. Knox also called for a, a, a college and a grammar school in every major town and city in Scotland and England to train the young in the arts, logic, rhetoric, grammar, history, languages such as Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and English. And sufficient stipends were to be rounded up from families and various other sources to provide for these teachers because a laborer is worthy of his hire. Scholarships were to be furnished by families in the church to poor students, and the church played a key role in supplying funds for poverty-stricken students. Knox believed that every child should be have the opportunity to go to school regardless of his socioeconomic status. And those students who demonstrated special aptitude were to be charged by the preachers to advance their studies at a college or a university. In fact, the ministers and the elders were responsible for conducting quarterly examinations of the students in the various levels of education to check their progress and to decide what students needed to go on to a higher level and what needed to find some other vocation. They didn't live under the naive dream that everybody should go to college, no matter who they are. Those judged unfit to continue their education at higher learnings were trained in a vocation and a craft to use their hands. And no student could graduate from this school system without possessing a sufficient knowledge of biblical Christianity. Along with all this, he called for the reform of the three ancient Scottish universities, St. Andrews, Glasgow, Aberdeen. The Roman Catholics required that Latin be taught in these universities. The reformers were even stricter. They said you have to know Latin before you can be admitted into a university. And teachers had to testify and give evidence not only of their ability to teach, but of their commitment to and teachability to the Protestant faith, as well as to the nature, their age and their family background. The Scottish school system of the Reformers had several distinctive traits that we should think about. First, it provided a universal education at the basic level. It was radical and revolutionary because it included girls as well as boys. Now, that was a radical step forward in those days. They believed little girls should be educated as well as little boys, although they weren't quite as far as we've gotten. And that is, they didn't believe the girls should be admitted to the universities. Secondly, attention was paid to the needs of the poor. They took their responsibility seriously. People who are in poverty situations, and it's not their fault, should be helped in providing their children with Christian education. The curriculum that they wanted to be taught in these schools 
was moderately one of liberal, liberal arts. It was an attempt to educate the child in the whole uh, sphere, whole range of disciplines and subjects to make him well, uh, give him a well-rounded education. The whole educational program was based on a philosophy of education that said the goal of training youth is to make them godly in whatever vocation they chose. Because of that goal, by the way, these great universities wouldn't accept students who didn't prove and manifest a godly Christian character. So we said the responsibility for the supervision of this whole educational system from the university down rested in the hands of the Reformed Church. There was a paragraph that uh, David Chilton wrote in summarizing John Knox's life that I want to end talking about his life with. I hope now by seeing, pointing out his contributions, you see just how uh, extensive the, their vision was in reforming every area of life by the Word of God. But let me give you this quote that pretty much summarizes the contribution of John Knox. Knox's continuing contribution is not just that of the Kirk of Scotland, which after four centuries still uses his Order of Geneva in worship. Nor is it just that of a nation freed from bondage to sin, ignorance, and status tyranny. It is rather Knox's firm insistence and lifelong demonstration that all men are religious in every aspect of life and that no institution, high or low, can be separated from its responsibility to God, that the greatest liberty is found in the greatest subservience to God's law, that there is one supreme king before whom all others must bow. And there you have John Knox. Now let's move on to another era, and that is the Elizabethan age. And we'll talk about the reign of Elizabeth I and the suppression of Puritanism and of the Reformed faith under her reign. Now, most people, if you hear about the Elizabethan age, what do you think about? You think about a time of bliss under good Queen Bess. They whipped the Spanish Armada. England is at peace. They got rid of Bloody Mary. The Protestants can have a good time of preaching and teaching. England is prospering. Everybody's happy. Shakespeare writes all his plays. Literature advances. <laughs> That's what we're taught in public and Christian schools. Elizabeth I was a brutal oppressor of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. She reigned for 45 years. The Spanish Armada was defeated while she was queen, but it wasn't Elizabeth that did it. It was storms in the English Channel that did it. There was massive inflation, currency debasement. There was an increase of literature. But if you put on one side all of the, quote, classical literature that you were taught that was written in the Elizabethan age, i.e. Shakespeare and others, and you pile them in a pile over here against all of the books and sermons and pamphlets and booklets written by Puritan preachers, and this over here, the classic literature will be an insignificant little pile. Now, you're not taught that. There was an increase of literature. Praise God for Shakespeare, etc. But it was the Puritans that wrote the Calvinistic literature that were the literary giants that dominated the publishing houses of that day. Well, let me give you Elizabeth I's dates. She was Queen of England from 1558 to 1603. 1558 to 1603 middle, late 16th century. And when she came to the throne, all of Europe was in turmoil. It's always good to see uh, the story that we're ta talking about in, in the light of the whole situation. I mean all of Europe was in a turmoil. In 1547, just a few years before, Francis I of France, Henry VIII both died the same year. One year earlier, 
Martin Luther died in 1546. For the following 30 years, one mere generation, that generation saw the following, the Peasants' War, the Sack of Rome, the split of the northern and southern Germany, divisions among the cantons of Switzerland, the break of England from the Vatican, and more wars, battles, executions, massacres, arguments, new books, atrocities, ferment, and fury than in any other single generation in the history of mankind. In that single generation, People as different as Luther and Melanchthon on one side, Zwingli and Farrell and Calvin on another, Charles V, Henry VIII, Francis I, and several popes all fought for control of the heart and soul of the people of Europe. This is an exciting time. Tremendous, uh, tempestuous time. The middle and late 16th century. First thing we need to talk about is the death of Bloody Mary. I love to talk about the death of Bloody Mary. Some people always like to ask questions about the death of Bloody Mary. (laughs) Bloody Mary died in 1558. Now, remember who she was. She was Bloody Mary Tudor. She was the ardent Roman Catholic daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Bloody Mary died of a fever early in the morning, November 17th, which should be a national holiday, November 17th. 1558, after a miserable life. On the day of her sister's death, now remember Elizabeth was the half-sister of Bloody Mary. They had the same father, but different mothers, and we'll talk about her mother later. On the very day that Bloody Mary, the Queen of England, died, Princess Elizabeth Tudor was out in a garden near her home under an oak tree reading a book. A young man by the name of William Cecil who became Lord Burley and who was her advisor for some 40 years, whose family, uh, who supported Lady Jane, by the way, William Cecil, over against Bloody Mary, and who was a great sympathizer of the Reformers, whose family owns the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina. William Cecil came to this young princess, fell down at her feet, and to her shock, addressed her as... Your Majesty told her of Mary's death and assured her of his complete allegiance. Overcome with excitement at the news, Elizabeth said in Latin, quote, It is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now, lest you think that originated in piety. Let me read you the quote that she alluded to and gave a funny little twist to. The quote is in Matthew 21:42. And Jesus said to them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is Jesus talking. I was rejected by the builders, but now I have been received, and it is marvelous in our eyes, says Jesus. Now now Elizabeth, not too humble, is putting the words in her own mouth, saying about herself what Jesus said about himself. This is a marvelous This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This spontaneous quote on the part of Elizabeth from the New Testament did not reflect any godliness but her good education. She was a complete and total creature of the Renaissance. She had no use for religious conviction. She could not understand at all why people were willing to fight over and lay down their lives for their religious commitments. And lest you think that Nancy Reagan did not have good precedent in consulting an astrologer to determine the inauguration date of her husband, Elizabeth I consulted her astrologer, Dr. John Dee, to determine the date of her coronation, which he told her best fit the stars for January the 15th, 1559. Now, let me tell you something about astrology and witchcraft and the like. 
anybody that's read anything about the late Middle Ages knows about the witches and the burning of the witches and demons and all these poor ignoramuses, these Christians that just brought up all these terrible, off-the-wall, fanatical things about witchcraft and demons and all that kind of stuff. You were taught that in public school and probably some Christian school. I want to tell you that contrary to the popular myth, it was not Christianity but the revived paganism of the Renaissance that was responsible for stirring up a, a climate that was favorable for all of the trials and executions of witches and so-called witches in the 16th and 17th century. Now, wh wh understand that the Reformation and the Renaissance were two entirely different things. One was good, one wasn't good. The Reformation was a revival of Augustinianism, that it was a calling of the church back to the Bible. The Renaissance was a driving to consistency of a false teaching of Thomas Aquinas. Augustine had taught, you cannot understand any area of life apart from the Word of God. A thousand or more years went by before the Protestant Reformation came and called the church back to Augustine. In between, Thomas Aquinas said, Augustine isn't correct. You do need the Bible to understand some areas of life, like how to run the church and how to partake of the sacraments. But all you need to understand other areas of life is reason. Industry, politics, economics, all the important things you don't need the Bible for. So the Renaissance comes along, and it says, if you don't need the Bible to understand some areas of life, you don't need the Bible to understand any area of life. And so the Renaissance, the great humanistic revolution turning Europe away from Christianity to atheism, the Renaissance made man the measure of all things and made man God. Then you have the period of enlightenment, etc. You say, well, Joe, there was a lot of religious painting and sculpturing going on. I mean, look at Michelangelo and his statue of David. I mean, here's a biblical theme of David. Anybody that's ever seen the statue of David will have to stand in amazement at this unbelievably uh, great piece of sculpture. Well, if you look carefully at Michelangelo's David, you'll find that this very brilliant man did something to his sculpture, or didn't do something to his sculpture, that showed that that man David never lived. Because Michelangelo's David is uncircumcised. The king of Israel was circumcised. King David, Michelangelo's David, does not represent the David of Scripture. It represents man with a capital M using the connotations of biblical themes that still stirred the populace. Well, Elizabeth was a daughter of the Renaissance. And the Renaissance uh, uh, took force by going back and rereading the ancient writings in Hebrew and, and uh, Greek. And a lot of the ancient works in Hebrew and Greek that the Renaissance read were non-Christian, were pagan. They had to do with ritual, ceremonial, experimental magic. They loved the ancient Greek books about uh, astrology. They made a distinction between white magic and black magic. They also read the, the, a lot of the mystic and uh, uh, pagan works of Plato, the great pervert, the writings of the Neoplatonists. They wrote the Hebrew, read the Hebrew Kabbalah, which is Jewish writings that were satanic. They believed, the Renaissance believed, that man was both the slave and the master of cosmic forces. And through diligent study, one could unlock the secrets of the universe and control nature and foresee the future even without the Encyclopedia Britannica. Astrology is the belief that human life on earth is controlled by the stars. And so this whole favorable climate uh, that, that uh, resulted in the burning of ostensible witches is not the product of Christianity. It's the product of humanism and of the Renaissance and Elizabeth was a product of all that. Well, what else was going on when she came to the throne? 
Mark Kitchen showed me a book today that was written in the 1800s on the life of Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And I told him he's fun. He said, now, he was funning with me. And he said, now, next week, I want you to give a lecture on Charles V. I thought I'd do it tonight instead of next week. You need to know about Charles V and how he fits into the whole scheme of things. He was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which meant Germany. We're talking about 1558. Charles V. Now, one of the things that's confusing is that all these people had the same names, whether they're German or French or, or, or Spanish or English, all these Charleses, all these James, all these Henrys. Uh, I mean, if you get them mixed up, welcome to the club. But Charles V was a Spaniard who was the emperor of Germany, Holy Roman Empire. He was an ardent Roman Catholic, and I don't want you to ever forget, whenever you think of Charles V, I always want you to think 30,000 Calvinists killed. He was responsible for the death of 30,000 Protestants, terrible, brutal deaths. He tried to wipe Protestantism out of Europe because he was such a devout Catholic. But by 1555, he gave up. These, they're, they're out, the more I kill, the more they come. He was an old man at the age of 35 because of all the worry about these Protestants. At 45, he was afflicted with gout, asthma, indigestion, and stammering. And half of his waking hours were in pain, and he couldn't sleep. He also was the father-in-law of Bloody Mary. One of the things that Charles V was famous for is he expanded the use of judicial torture, that is, the use of torture in trials and courtrooms. In the Middle Ages, it was used rarely in ecclesiastical trials, but Charles V made torture a regular, ongoing element in criminal procedure. He particularly favored torture in witch trials, because torture seldom failed to elicit a confession. In fact, torture was allowed in trials whenever there was probable cause to believe the defendant guilty. And his name was so connected with judicial torture, to honor him. Judicial torture in those days was called the Carolina, to honor Charles V. He was so frustrated in his war against Protestantism that Charles V abdicated the throne of Germany and Spain. He turned over the crown of Spain to Philip II, the husband of Bloody Mary, and he turned over the title of Emperor of Germany to his brother Ferdinand. And then the rest of his life, he lived in a mansion inside a monastery. Praying and worshiping God? No. Continuing his lifelong gluttony. Gulping down huge quantities of sausages, eel pies, pickled partridges, rivers of wine and beer. During that time, he read reports and intelligence that came to him from Philip and from people all over on how they were continuing to brutally uh, persecute the Protestants. He always encouraged that. And the one regret of his life that kept him awake at night is that he allowed Martin Luther, the German, to live. In August, his gout turned into fever. And for a month, says the original writings, quote, he was sacked with all the pains of death before he was allowed to die. And his death occurred September the 21st, 1558. All right, that's Charles V. Now, there's another part of Europe you need to know about, and that is the Huguenots in France. You remember what we said the word Huguenot means? It's the best the French could do to say the German word Eidgenossen, which means brothers of the oath, covenanters, reform people, Calvinists. That's who the Huguenots were. Now, let me tell you something about France during this middle and late 16th century. The king of France was Francis II. Guess who Francis II was married to? Now, you've got to keep these things straight. Charles V was the father-in-law of Bloody Mary because she was married to Philip II, his son. Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, 
Catherine Hepburn in the movie. Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, the mother of John I, King of England, was married to Francis II when he was a prince and then later became King of France. Mary Stuart was Elizabeth's cousin because they both had the same grandparents. Bloody Mary was Elizabeth's sister. During this time, France made a treaty with England, agreeing to pull out of Scotland and to recognize Elizabeth as Queen of England. But Francis II died in 1560, and the crown of France passed to his younger brother, Charles IX. Now, I'll tell you that only to get to Charles IX's mother. Her name, I'm sure you've heard, or at least her last name. Her name was Catherine de' Medici. She ruled as regent, that is, she dominated her young son. And for all practical purposes, Catherine Medici, de' Medici ruled, governed France. When Francis II died, his wife, Mary Stuart, moved back to Scotland to become Queen of Scotland. And that was a major threat to Elizabeth because Elizabeth, in the early days of her reign, I mean, England, in the early days of Elizabeth's reign, still had a large Catholic contingency. Most of the civil magistrates were Catholics in England in the first part of Elizabeth's reign because of Bloody Mary's influence. All the clergy, or at least the vast majority of the clergy, the legal clergy, were all Roman Catholic. The Calvinists were only dominant in London and southern England. Why do you think that was so? Because that's where all the refugees from Europe who had contact with Calvinists of England and the others would come. During this time, the Roman Catholic France had declared war, literal war, on the French Calvinists, the Huguenots, in France. Now, get this. This is one of the bloodiest wars in history. This was an internal civil war of the government of France and the Roman Catholic Church versus the French Calvinists, the Huguenots, or Huguenots, whichever you want to say. And now, get the sides to this thing. The Huguenots had, there were two million Huguenots in France, two million French Calvinists in France. There were 20 million French Catholics. The French Catholics were led by the Degas family, D-E-G-U-I-S-E. You know who the Degas family's daughter was? Mary Stewart's mother. Mary of Guise, grandmother of James I. In this war, Queen Elizabeth supported the Huguenots. Hey, you say, well, the grace, she has sympathy with the Calvinists? Not on your life. She couldn't stand the Calvinists. But she supported the Huguenots against the French government, the Roman Catholics, because she was shrewd. She knew that as long as France was entangled in a civil war, it would be weak and distracted and therefore couldn't conspire with Scotland, Mary Stuart, against England. So she, she supported the Huguenots to keep the fires burning in France. In the Huguenot Wars, the Huguenots were humiliated and defeated time and again. At one point, everybody was tired of fighting, and so Charles the 10th of, of, excuse me, the 9th of France dominated by his mother, Catherine de' Medici, worked out an agreement with the French Calvinists, giving them a measure of peace, and said they could have freedom of worship anywhere in France except in Paris. They could even be elected to public office. And Charles' mother, Catherine de' Medici, even offered her daughter, Princess Marguerite, who carried on correspondence with John Calvin, and John Calvin continued to try to convert this woman, Princess Marguerite. She actually offered her daughter, de' Medici, offered her daughter, Marguerite, to Henry Bourbon of Navarre. Henry Bourbon of Navarre was, was a Calvinist sympathizer. Later on, by the way, the war in France uh, became known as the War of the Three Henrys. There were three men vying for the throne of France, and every one of them's name was Henry. Well, anyway, so, lo and behold, Catherine de' Medici, the devout Roman Catholic, offers her, her daughter, Marguerite, to the Calvinist Henry of Navarre. Charles IX, King of France, works out a peace treaty with the Calvinists. And, brother, that agreement filled old Pope Gregory XIII with horror and Philip II of Spain. 
Because what did the Pope think? Good night heresies being, being put on the throne in France. Henry of Navarre is in a position to be king of England. The king of, has surrendered for all practical purposes to the Huguenots. The de Medicis have offered their daughter to this Protestant. Oh, the Pope is panicking now. Philip II of Spain's panicking. Uh-oh, they're going to have a united France. France is going to come after Spain. And so now all of Europe is shaken. During this time period, the Calvinists in France grew stronger and more numerous under the powerful leadership of an admiral named Coligny, C-O-L-I-G-N-Y. Great man. He became the commander of the French fleet. The king of France consulted de Coligny on every issue. And he was a Calvinist. This scared Catherine de' Medici to death. She didn't intend for it to go this far. And the other Henry, the king's brother, Henry, the Duke of Anjou, who was a transvestite, also was upset about this whole situation. So in 1572, in June, for a nice June wedding, Henry of Navarre comes to Paris to get his bride and to have a wedding. with. And here the de Medici, Roman Catholic, given to the Protestant Henry. He arrives in Paris with 800 Calvinists and Admiral Coligny at his side. 4,000 more Calvinists arrive to celebrate the marriage as well as the arrival of Henry of Navarre. The wedding took place August the 18th, 1572, without the Pope's approval. Paris was seething with anger. It was still a Roman Catholic country. They didn't like all this toleration of these Calvinists and people coming, Calvinists coming that close to the throne of France. So three days later, on August the 22nd, a sniper shot Coligny, ripped off his finger and splinted his arm. Didn't kill him. Nobody took credit. But the de Guise family was suspiciously quiet throughout this whole event. Behind the scenes, Catherine de Medici and her transvestite Henry, Duke of Anjou, along with the Duke of Guise, the other Henry, pressured Charles IX to dump Coligny and the Calvinists. By the way, later on, when the transvestite became king of France, became King Henry III, he admitted that he and all these other guys, like the Duke of Guise, agreed that the Calvinists all had to be assassinated. But in order to get rid of these Calvinists, King Charles IX had to be convinced that the Calvinists were plotting a rebellion against him. He wasn't the smartest, nor the most powerful of men, being dominated by his mother. So he was told that there were 30,000 Calvinists fixing to kidnap him. Well, he realized then he either had to choose between he and his mother's life or the Calvinists. And so Charles IX cried out in fear, quote, By the death of God, since you choose to kill the admiral, I consent, calling ye. But then you must kill all the Huguenots in France so that not one shall be left to reproach me. Kill them all! Kill them all! The massacre began. Three o'clock in the morning, August the 24th. 1572, St. Bartholomew's Day. Men break into Coligny's room, brutally kill him, throw him out the window. The Duke of Guise spits at his body on the ground. Horrible slaughter, rare even in war, followed. Coligny's head was cut off and sent to Louvre. His genitals and hands were offered for sale and his cadaver hung by its heels. And the whole populace of Paris and France rejoiced at the freedom to express suppressed impulses to inflict pain and to kill. 8,000 Calvinists in Paris alone died on St. Bartholomew's Day. And the Spanish ambassador reported, quote, As I write, they're killing them all. They're stripping them naked, sparing not even the children. Blessed be God. Then city after city throughout France, these murderous orgies continued so that in a few days, 
over 30,000 French Calvinists were killed. And France has never recovered. When the news reached the Cardinal of Lorraine at Rome, a cardinal in the Vatican whose last name was Guise, when he was told that the Calvinists were being slaughtered, he handed the messenger a thousand crowns in money. He was so happy. When Pope Gregory the Thirteenth and all his cardinals heard of it, they attended a high mass of thanksgiving and a special medal was struck. And a man named Vasari was commissioned to paint the massacre of the Huguenots on St. Bartholomew's Day for the Pope to enjoy and have inscribed at the bottom of the painting in Latin, Pontifex Coldni Nescent Probat. In English, the Pope approves the killing of Coligny. By the way, I just read a book Michael Harper ordered called The Vicars of Christ, The Dark Side of the Papacy, written by a Roman Catholic, which is a history of the popes. Now, I always knew the papacy was a rotten bunch. But I'm telling you, I have never read a book by a Protestant in my life that so devastatingly shows that to a man these popes were rotten. They were murderers, homosexuals, adulterers. I mean, this, you, it, by the way, this book was lifted from the bestsellers list. I wonder who put the influence behind that. It's hard to get now, though it was a bestseller, it's hard to get. But I highly recommend to you a book written by a Roman Catholic, Peter de Rosa, Vicars of Christ. Well, the effects of the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre spread far and wide. The Calvinists, do you think that stopped the Calvinists? They continued another rebellion two months later, and finally Charles IX guaranteed them freedom of worship. But the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre permanently changed Protestant thinking. Protestantism was never the same after August the 24th, 1572. It was never the same. The Protestants, the Calvinists most particularly, rejected the divine right of kings and be began believing that the people alone had the right to elect and, and depose kings. The effect of St. Bartholomew's Day was particularly deep in England. Bloody Mary had already stained and discredited the Catholic cause with her burnings. But as a result of St. Bartholomew's Day, the Roman Catholic cause was indelibly identified with bestial persecution of Protestants. And Protestantism was never the same after St. Bartholomew's Day. We'll continue next week, the Lord willing, on Elizabeth I. Let us pray. Lord, as we study again this whole period, we pray that you would help us to not forget the rock out of which we have been hewn. Help us to throw away our broken cistern and get back to the cistern that holds living water. For Christ's sake, amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.